you've found me here on episode 127. The conversation around cancer is often a challenging one because everyone in the conversation has a solid opinion which is unwavering and they're even offended when you ask them a question aka the conventional medical system. And then there are people that are very well researched and have a different standpoint, but are censoring themselves because the industry is so large and its reach so long that it tries to crush anyone with a different opinion, despite it being an expert opinion. If you or anyone you know has or has had cancer and is seeking a different perspective and a fresh approach, then today's episode is for you because we talk about the for-profit cancer business, cancer metabolism, and how the conventional genetic paradigm of cancer may be akin to looking through binoculars from the wrong end. I even learned some things on this one that I'm now going to trot off and look into. Trust me, it's a good one. Let's dive into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? It's your boy, Maddie here, and it's my mission to coach 250 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy life that you truly deserve by the end of 2021. So lately, I've been looking into my episodes, content, and my program kind of from the back end so that I can put it out to everyone in a better way. And in that process, I I came across this, which I wanted to share. Did you know that the World Health Organization says that approximately 39% of the world's population is overweight? That's crazy. Do you know how many people that is? Well, I'll tell you. It's about 3,034,201,721 people. (laughs) Holy hell, that's crazy. The downside is... Well, that's a gigantic number. The upside is the size of that number makes my program one of the most exclusive things that you can do when you want to lose weight and be your healthiest self. We're only working with 250 people over the entire year. (laughs) So get involved. The link is down in the show notes below. Scroll down, click the link if you want to lose weight and be your healthiest self. But the reason I was thinking about excess body fat and being overweight is not just because I work with groups and individuals to help you lose weight and be your healthiest self, but because one of the epiphanies I had working in a cancer hospital was that being overweight is one of the biggest, pardon the pun, one of the biggest predictors of developing chronic diseases like cancer. And that's what we're talking about today with today's guest, Mark Sloan, whom is the number one best-selling author of numerous books, including The Cancer Industry, Cancer, The Metabolic Disease Unraveled, and the six times international bestseller, Red Light Therapy, Miracle Medicine. He's published over 300 articles on his popular health website, which has a powerful statement to make as a domain name. You ready? Endalldisease.com. And so when Mark was 12 years old, sadly, his mother died from cancer. And about 15 years later, he realized that his greatest tragedy was actually his greatest gift. His mother gave him a story to tell that could inspire others and a mind that could find the answers the world was literally dying to know. His mother died so his life could have purpose. That purpose is to ensure that no child has to go through what he did ever again. 
Hailing from Ontario, Canada, his goal is to design and build an off-grid homestead and his ultimate goal in life is to reduce the suffering in this world and to make it a better place for everybody and for future generations. And so the man himself is here with me, Mr. Mark Sloan. Welcome to the show, mate. How are you doing? Thanks. It's great to be here. Um, I just did some red light therapy, took some methylene blue and some aspirin to prepare the brain cells. Uh, I think I'm ready for this. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited to have you here, man. We're going to crack open a uh, can of worms, which is what we love to do here on the podcast. So you lost your mother at a young age, which is obviously devastating. And listening to a bunch of your shows before we started today, it seems like that was the catalyst to really move you into that sort of now what is about a 20 plus year journey in researching health and cancer specifically. What were the highs and lows of that journey that kind of got you where you are today? Uh, some of the highs and lows were just trying to figure out what was going on in this world. I think that's kind of where it all began. I was just like, I, I need to figure out what's happening so I can find my place in this world. And so there's lots of up and downs when you start going down rabbit holes in this world. Um, but ultimately, <laughs> I realized, you know, health is really where it's at. If you don't have health, you, have, you got nothing. So that's kind of the foundation for, I guess I would say, solving the many problems that we have in this world. If we have a chance, we got to first look at our health and take care of ourselves and understand the body and how it works instead of depending on a for-profit medical system that pretends like toxic drugs and knives are medicine. So that was uh, an up and down road for sure. And then at one point I just realized, you know, like I've been researching things for, you know, over 10 years now. Um, I'm really good at it. And I was thinking like, you know, Cancer hasn't been solved. In fact, this is the 50th anniversary this year, 2021, of the war on cancer. And, you know, where are the answers? What's going on? This is a great time to step back and look at it and analyze what we've got from it because we've been supporting this system that has promised us a cure. And it's 50 years later. And the reality is more people are diagnosed and dying than ever before. So I was like, you know what? No one's solving this. Doctors are too busy. Scientists, they're doing great work, but they don't have the ability to bring the information. They're not good marketers, basically, and they're not getting any attention on TV because the amazing and important breakthroughs that really drive humanity forward in a positive direction are disruptive to the status quo, unfortunately. So it's, it's contraindicative for a media supported by a pharmaceutical industry to uh, present the findings that would make it less money, right? So... Uh, I realized, you know, if anyone can solve this, it's me. I, I've got a really high skill set, a great ability to research. And I just felt this confidence in myself that if, if anyone can do it, it needs to be like a lay person with a really high skill in research and, and an unbelievable work ethic. So ultimately, I realized and I committed to writing a book. I'm like, if the answers are out there, I'm going to find them. So I started researching everything I could get my hands on. I think it was definitely well over 10,000 studies that I looked at. Between the two books I've written on cancer, one on the cancer industry, the other one called Cancer the Metabolic Disease Unraveled, there's over 3,500 scientific and clinical references. So just that writing that book was an up and down journey for sure. And in fact, it was really difficult at that time to balance the book writing with everything else in my life. So basically, I, uh, I knew I was going to finish this book and it was going to be amazing or I was going to die trying. So I basically, it turned into an obsession for three years. Um, during that time, I lost my girlfriend, basically due to neglect, because I was putting so much or so much effort and time into the book itself. Mm -hmm. And then at the same time, I had my boss. I was working a limousine job at the time. And my boss at the time also happened to be my landlord. 
And uh, so it was a really sticky situation because he wasn't a good landlord. And so, but it was hard to stick up for myself because he had this leverage where he wouldn't give me hours if I did. So all that was going on while I was writing it. So there was a very up and down journey. And then when I published it, it was actually just one book called Mm -hmm. Cancer Cured. And uh, I found it really difficult to write a description for it. When I published it, it was like mixed emotions among the people, like the reactions from it. Some people got angry. They're like, you can't cure the disease in a book. And I was just like, oh, interesting. I didn't foresee that kind of reaction. Anyways, that was a, I was expecting the world to embrace this book for some reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they didn't at that time. And, And ultimately... Uh, I realized that it's because I didn't market it properly. So what I realized is that there's actually two books in here. So I spent the next maybe six months splitting up into two books, one on the cancer industry, the other on basically what's happening in the body with cancer. Mm-hmm. And then I wrote an intro and a conclusion separate for each one and published them again. So there was a lot of up and downs there. And then finally, when I published it, at that point, I learned how to launch a book because I took a course on it. And so both books launched right up to number one. And now they're both best-selling books, and uh, those have been the the biggest up its ups and downs so far. Uh, and now it's a lot smoother, and I'm about to publish my next book, so I'm uh, pretty excited. Yeah, congratulations on getting those books out there. I think uh, I had a similar journey in regards to not realizing how indoctrinated the world was when I started learning this information. I started. I didn't. I haven't written a book yet let's say but um but i started doing seminars and workshops talking about cancer as a metabolic disease and how different herbs and and spices and uh, foods can be consumed in order for the body to fight cancer and also how fasting works and i had the same kind of experience i felt like oh i found the secret and there's actually heaps of people that know the information and then i went out there too and i had a bit of resistance and a bit of judgment and people attacking me on facebook and like savagely attacking attacking me because i i also was just like, oh, the world's going to receive this because it's amazing. But I, I learned in that process that that's where I started understanding, you know, mass psychological brainwashing from governments, from medical industries, and just people that just accept what exists because it exists, you know. And so, yeah, that was a, a conditioning phase of my life. And it sounds potentially similar for you too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think we all everyone who's kind of seeking truth kind of goes through that. And at first we all naively think that, you know, the world's going to love it as much as we do. But I just, I find it really strange. Most people, they don't want new information. They don't want to think outside the box. I don't understand it. I kind of get mad at God sometimes for creating people like that, but that's the world we live in. Life would be just super easy if everybody was open-minded and open to transforming every day. (laughs) Maybe that's the point, right? It's like, I guess uh, people who do think for themselves, um, maybe that is the point. It's supposed to be this way so that we grow and we do what we were meant to do, right? Yeah, totally. And everybody's on their journey. I often, the way that I rationalize it for myself is that in the beginning, I was kind of trying to convince people 
uh, like, this is the way, you know, and then I realized I was kind of like a crazy preacher. And then now I sort of sit with the idea that if I'm exposure one or exposure five or exposure 10 to this information, at some point in that individual's life, the information will land uh, and they will be able to say, oh, I heard Maddie say that or I heard Mark say that five years ago and by the time it's built up. But if I, in, in, on exposure one, if I put effort into convincing them, they were never, turn, you know, they were never open to this ever again. So I kind of sit with it like that that's a lot more freeing to do that it's uh you don't have to expend so much energy that way it sounds good totally totally so i'm curious as well because there's a lot of epiphanies in my journey that uh kind of came together before i made you know big decisions to remove myself from the industry but what was the epiphany that led to you believing that conventional cancer therapy and and cancer theory was actually not the right way to move forward well, I first kind of got that idea in my mind um, when I started writing my first book on cancer. Um, while doing that, I had to write the intro, which was basically my story and why I'm writing the book, um, which was the loss of my mother. And in doing so, I think when you go through trauma, this is pretty severe trauma for a 12-year-old kid to go through, right? For but sure. I think our bodies and minds kind of protect ourselves by blocking out some of the things that happened and which is kind of messy. So I had to talk to my sister and my dad about it and kind of ask them so I could bounce my perspective off them and hear theirs and figure out exactly what did happen. And in doing so, I was thinking about it and um, it was like, it just came clear to me one day. I'm like, this is really obvious that mom wasn't even, she didn't even appear sick at all when she was diagnosed and she didn't start dying until she got chemotherapy. Like, that was the most obvious thing I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. It's like she got hit by a truck. Her legs swelled up. All of a sudden, she couldn't walk. Almost instantly, the inflammation in her legs was just too much to walk. Um, she could barely talk, couldn't eat solid foods, um, and had this, like, relentless pain, which tortured her all the way to her death, like, two or three months later. So I, I remember saying that. I said It's like we all thought this, everyone in the family, and extended family. It's like we all somehow knew that the treatments did it, but no one ever really said it. So just that moment when I said that, it just, I think it might've been the beginning of healing or something because we're admitting what actually happened. Right. Mm -hmm. So something about that was therapeutic, but that's kind of what really triggered this me questioning it. Like, was it the cancer that killed her or was it the treatment? And that's the real big question that people need to ask. Unfortunately, it's been answered like almost 2,500 years ago, but, um, <laughs> but uh, it's something that we need to admit to today if we're going to solve this disease and move past it. Um, so that was the first epiphany that made me start to question. And then I was like, okay, that's what it looks like, but I don't know for sure. So I want to look at the evidence, and this is what I did in the book, just looked at all the scientific evidence. There's a chapter on surgery, one on chemotherapy, one on radiotherapy, one on all the diagnostic tests. And uh, it turns out, uh, the evidence agrees with my experience, basically. The, the researcher and scientist that people need to know about is Dr. Hardin B. Jones. He was a U.S. leading statistician for over 30 years, and he conducted a 25-year study basically asking the question, you know, are cancer treatments helping or harming? And so basically you had two pools of people. They were all diagnosed with cancer. One group was treated with surgery, chemo, and radiotherapy, and the other was completely untreated. And the results of his study he presented to a conference for the American Cancer Society in 1969, 
and they were as follows. And I quote, cancer patients or my studies have proven conclusive conclusively that cancer patients who are untreated live longer and feel better than patients who submit to radiotherapy, chemotherapy and surgery. If one gets cancer and opts to do nothing, he will live longer and feel better than if he undergoes these treatments. So it was conclusively proven at that point, and now it's 52 years ago, that these treatments are killing people left and right, and people are dying faster than they would have if they hadn't got them at all. And then here we are, you know, going full steam ahead every single day in this world using these treatments. And to quote quote Glenn Warner, a doctor, he said, we have a multi-billion dollar industry that's killing people left and right just for financial gain. But like I said earlier, this goes way back, even it goes literally over 2000 years ago. Hippocrates, the father of um, modern medicine, he said he was born in 460 BC. And he said back then, it's better not to apply any treatment in cases of occult cancer for if treated, the patients die quickly. But if not treated, they hold out for a long time. Wow. So even way back then, it was known. This is something we just really need to admit and look at this dark side and admit that. And what we'll realize is that there's an amazing light at the end of the tunnel. And that's my second book, which shows us that no more research needs to be done in order for us to leave this disease behind us forever. Man, that's powerful stuff. Like, what do you think? Like, there's all this evidence out there and I've I've read a bunch of it myself as well, uh, which is what, you know, I guess what led me to be on a podcast with you right now. But what do you think is going on? Because I know there's... It's, it's all sitting there on the, in the journals. Uh, it's been there for a long time. But if you bring it up to a doctor or any kind of, you know, day-to-day person, they, like we kind of discussed before, they, get, they aggressively oppose it. And, like, what do you think is going on there? Because, I mean, we've got the education bodies that, you know, spend, doctors spend 10 to 12 years in education, the education bodies which are funded by the, and instructed by the governments. And, you know, it's been, what, about 120 125 billion dollar industry per year for cancer therapy. So is it really just these doctors are just a cog in the system? Is that why people aggressively oppose the truth? I think it's more about a, a great cancer mythology is what I call it. Um Peyton Rouse he said it best. Um The genetic somatic mutations theory acts as a tranquilizer to those who believe in it. Um, (laughs) And what he was referring to is the paradigm that cancer is a genetic disease. And this is what the medical establishment is is fully committed to. The idea that a cancer cell is like a genetically mutated cell, kind of like a Frankenstein type cell, or even like a werewolf that's trying to kill the patient. Um, This has nothing to do with reality or science. No scientific evidence has ever suggested this. And in fact, well, it's been known for many decades, uh, or at least evidence has been building for many decades, suggesting that cancer has nothing to do whatsoever with genetics. Mm -hmm. Um, I've collected, I think, 32 different studies in my book, Cancer the Metabolic Disease Unravel, which is fun. I love looking at those. There's many different lines of research that prove this in in different ways. For example, like cloning um, a brain tumor cell from a mouse. And then you clone the mouse based on that with that the mutated DNA. You would expect that the offspring or the clone would get or develop cancer, but it directed normal normal development in the mouse, so there was no cancer in it. So that's one example. <clears throat> Dr. Harry Rubin of the University of California, 
I believe it was in 2006, he published a study showing, this wasn't cancer specific, but that cells in the body can have hundreds of mutations and still behave normally. Mm-hmm. So there's some more evidence. And then the one-two punch here, the third one, the, the biggest and most comprehensive study ever undertaken on cancer genetics was the National Cancer Institute's own project called the Cancer Genome Atlas Project. And this was launched in 2005. And the goal of the project was basically to determine one or more, like a sequence of mutations that would be responsible for each type of cancer. For the genesis of this kind of cancer, there's this series of mutations. For this cancer, it's this series. And then based on that, they're going to develop different drugs that could switch off um, each gene to fix the problem. Mm -hmm. So it's actually, they put it all on the line with this one. And it's a really noble effort. It's amazing. It was a multi-billion dollar initiative. So if anything could ever prove once and for all whether cancer is genetic or not, it was this one. And it turns out the Cancer Genome Atlas Project was a complete and utter failure. They took cancer cells from the tumors of separate people who had the same kind of cancer, and they found the genetic mutations within them were vastly different. Vastly different. And then when they took cancer cells from a person with cancer from the same tumor, they were so different, they they almost occurred completely at random. They even looked at like a metastatic cancer cell, which is a cell that broke free from a tumor and is floating through the body, Mm -hmm. supposedly trying to colonize and kill the patient somewhere else. But um, (laughs) the genetic signature of those cells were completely different than the cells from the original tumor. So basically that proved once and for all the cancer has nothing to do with genetics whatsoever. And in fact, the co-founder of DNA himself, James Watson, responded publicly to these findings, and he recommended a switch in cancer research from genetics to metabolism, which is an incredibly amazing thing. It's a humble thing. This is a guy who discovered the genetic code himself. He's saying, yeah, it's not that important. We need to look at metabolism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it turns out that is exactly what cancer is. It's a metabolic disease. The cause is known. And there are many inexpensive and safe ways to treat it. And to treat cancer, you, there is no need whatsoever to try to kill cancer cells. Mm-hmm. And the cancer cells are not trying to kill you. There's something else happening there. And maybe I'll leave that for the next question. <laughs> well, I'm going to dive into that because I've also had Dr. Nasha Winters on the show, who I'm sure you're familiar with, that wrote the... Um, the metabolic disease, right? Uh, The cancer, the metabolic disease as well, like a different version of that book. And she uh, talks- Oh, I haven't heard of that. I would love to read it though. Yeah, check her out, man. So she's been on the podcast and her and I have uh, spoken on a few different summits. Uh, She's based down in Mexico, um, Mexico and Florida, I think. She's an amazing human. Uh, But uh, yeah, that book's worth checking out too. And she she talks a lot about it being metabolic. So if cancer's not in the genetics uh, and it's a metabolic disease, obviously the genetics that run our metabolism exist, right? So how then are people switching on these genes that then cause a dysfunction in the metabolism? Oh, it's actually the other way around. Um, so it turns out genetic mutations in cells are what Dr. Thomas Seifried would call a downstream epiphenomenon of something else occurring first in cells. Mm -hmm. And it turns out as soon as a cell loses its ability to utilize oxygen, it releases what is called hypoxia-inducible factor one. And that is the precise chemical 
that stimulates uh, or destabilizes uh, the genetic material and causes DNA strand breaks and the genetic mutations seen in disease. So looking for genetic causation to disease, which is what the it's what the medical industry does for literally every disease. Um, you're looking at not the cause, but the effect. So that's a symptom of the problem. And that explains why no disease has ever been cured and why it never will be if we keep going along with this for-profit system of medicine, which has its crosshairs aimed at the wrong target. Yeah, totally. And so I guess if it if we're coming from the other direction, then the molecules that are entering metabolism are the likes of the food that we put into our body, the air that we breathe, the water that we consume. So is it the quality of those external materials that we put into our body that destabilizes the metabolism? Yeah, so from my research, whether it's whether you want to call it cancer, obesity, heart disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes, the name doesn't matter. There's only one disease in the body, and that's a malfunctioning cell metabolically. Uh, the exact same thing is happening in the body, whether it's cancer or all these other diseases. Um, and there are two ways to induce metabolic dysfunction. One is a deficiency of the nutrients needed in your, your diet, so protein, carbs, fats, your vitamins and minerals. And a lot of people don't even know, like everyone knows, you know, you need vitamins and minerals. It's like a mantra in our society, but they don't know why. And so I would love to fill that gap in and put it into context. And that is your body uses the minerals and vitamins in your diet to create enzymes, which catalyze energy production inside the mitochondria in your cells. So that's, that's how diet plays into this. So yeah, if you, for example, the critical respiratory enzyme cytochrome C oxidase, uh, the precursor for that is copper. So if you have zero copper in your diet, your body can't make that enzyme. And uh, this is what Dr. Otto Warburg, the two-time Nobel Prize laureate, first, he actually was, he won the Nobel Prize once for the discovery of that enzyme. Um, and what he showed was that if that single respiratory enzyme is missing, that turns a cell cancerous. Basically, it injures a cell. Um, and then that, like for so many, for almost 100 years, like his fellow scientists, he was looked up at as like a brilliant scientist, Warburg, even among his scientific peers. But his work on the metabolism of tumors was always kind of brushed off as like a, like a weak point in his work or something. But there was a study in 2015. It's just like just in the past 10 years, they're finally admitting like Warburg was right. And there was a 2015 study in the U.S. where they replicated his work and they showed, you know, if cytochrome C oxidase is not present or functioning, it induces what is called the Warburg effect, which is a normal cell turning cancerous. So, so yeah, one disease, whether you want to call it cancer or whatnot, and two ways to cause that disease, uh, deficiency of nutrients and toxicity as well. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. 
I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. I think that's a, a lot of the reason as well that the Warburg effect's becoming known and a lot of people like yourself are bringing light to it. Um, and we've, I've done a bunch of cancer episodes on here talking about the Warburg effect. And, and I think as well with the rise of the ketogenic diet, there's been a lot of experimentation with the keto diet uh, because it changes the metabolism of ourselves. Well, it doesn't change it, but it, you know, it leans more to one type of uh, fuel production. Uh, and given that cancer cells can consume glucose at two to 50 times the rate of a normal cell, shifting that over. And it's interesting, we're shifting that over to the ketogenic or, or keto, being in ketosis has, has had a really profound effect for a lot of people. And actually, even in the hospital, the keto diet is on the long list of treatments, but the patient never survives to get to the last the last line of therapy, which is actually <laughs> a different type of nutrition. And well, most doctors wouldn't be able to treat anybody with nutrition given they only have, you know, one or two hours of education in 12 years on it anyway. So it's... um. Yeah, where do you sit with the the ketogenic diet being used as a therapeutic tool? That's an interesting question. Um, I think it depends what kind of fats they're consuming. Uh, this is something that not a lot of people know about, but when it comes to dietary fat, I think the main thing to understand is the differences in the effects in the body based on the saturation of the fat. Like you mentioned, cancer cells consume much more glucose than non-cancerous cells. And the reason why a lot of people think that's because you have like, like in the movie Men in Black, when the, the alien starts like eating sugar water, like they think like that's the cancer cell just trying to, you know, survive and grow and, and kill the patient. But that's it just fits into the wrong paradigm. So I would agree that I think it's it's well established anyways, that uh, cancer cells do consume more glucose. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, once the glucose in the bloodstream is consumed, and the glucose or the yeah the glucose stored in the liver then the body starts producing its own glucose so it's like if you the idea of starving a cancer cell of sugar uh, it's not really possible because if you stop eating sugar your body's going to make sugar anyways and the way it does that is actually pretty damaging it releases cortisol and adrenaline and those stimulate the breakdown of fat tissues and muscle and then your body sends those amino acids to the liver and gluconeogen through the process of gluconeogenesis creates more sugar. So it's like if you avoid sugar, um, your body's going to get it anyways. So I'm not actually a proponent of the ketogenic diet. In fact, I think that's the exact problem happening in cancer. The same metabolism that the ketogenic diet creates is the cancer metabolism itself, a situation where the body's chronically burning fat. And to solve the problem, it's is to switch it back, switch back on oxidation and glucose use. So oxidation of glucose within the mitochondria, I maintain, is the ideal. And I think it's the unsaturated fats in the diet, which are like your corn oils, unfortunately, avocado oils, nut and seed oils, um, 
these potently uh, promote tumor formation and prevent the healing of the tumor itself. So that being said, I think, yeah, I think one thing that people need to understand is something called the Randall cycle. So let's say you have like a bunch of fatty acids in your bloodstream Mm -hmm. and you have a certain amount of glucose in your bloodstream as well. There's like this competition for substrates. So if you have a high level of fatty acids, your body will use those. And then at a certain point, if you elevate the glucose amounts, it will switch to glucose oxidation. So one of the effective ways to treat it is to use something that or to one, avoid consumption of the fatty acids. If I'm right about glucose um, oxidation being the solution, which the evidence is overwhelming at this point, and it's in my book, um, not only not consuming the fatty acids, but also increasing glucose consumption at the same time, and perhaps taking something like aspirin, which inhibits lipolysis, inhibits the release of the fatty acids from your tissues. That will get the fatty acid level way down, and then some glucose, like um, a really good carbohydrate is orange juice, has a nice balance of glucose and fructose. That will bring the glucose levels up and that will switch the body's metabolism over to oxidizing glucose once again. Um, I didn't rehearse this question, so this is all off the cuff, but <laughs> I guess that's good. my answer to uh, what I think about the ketogenic diet. Well, and it's an interesting perspective because a lot of people that have cancer or any of the diseases that you know one could have because as you suggest you know it's a metabolic dysfunction which results in any number of different diseases but a lot of those people are carrying severely large amounts of body fat so it seems like there may be some kind of conundrum that the metabol that the cell would get into which is we need to shut off this fat burning but that and that helps get rid of the disease but we're also carrying the you know all of this body fat which is damaging to the individual and it's like you know where does the body go with that does it get rid of the body fat or does it get rid of the disease and one kind of cause the other yeah absolutely i think um i think body fat can be um Reduce. I, I don't know. I guess from the, my research into um, obesity and how to heal it, I think raising the metabolism seems to be the answer, mm-hmm. which is like the the amount of energy produced at rest, you know, because then it's going to consume the fat to produce the energy. If the more energy um, your body produces, the quicker it'll get rid of that. So uh, basically, anything that increases the metabolism seems to be a good answer. And I think the highest metabolism would be one where the thyroid's working and and glucose is being oxidized so i think the biggest inhibitor of a high metabolism is are the unsaturated fats once again so uh if someone's going to do a ketogenic diet if you do it with like just coconut oil or butter like the highest saturation of fats these are very stable fats and that's definitely if you're into that uh, i'm not going to tell anyone what to do what to eat but if you're into the ketogenic diet uh high saturated fat and almost all saturated fats would be the the safe and best way to do it and I do, yeah, I think that would result in uh, probably some fat loss as well. So I'm curious, if you were diagnosed with cancer today, with everything you know, what would you do? Oh, this is good. I was going to say this is like a three-step process to answer this one. The first step would be to answer what cancer isn't, and but we've already gone over that, which is great, so I don't have to do <laughs> that part. So cancer is not a genetic disease. If someone's diagnosed with it, it's not going to kill them. Um and it has no intention of killing them. There's no like murderous rampage style cell that's trying to actually murder <laughs> the patient. 
But that leaves kind of a blank spot. Like, what is it then? You know, what is cancer? What's a tumor? And amazingly, these things are all really well established. Every T has been crossed. Every I has been dotted. Um, and so it's such a privilege to be able to present this one. Um, so what is cancer? What is a tumor when someone has it? And to answer this, I'd like to go back all the way to the 1860s. There was an amazing German physician, Dr. Rudolf Virchow. And he spent most of his career working directly with cancer patients. And one of the things he noticed, he noticed a, a commonality that was so universal. In 1862, he published a hypothesis. And that was that cancerous tumors form so commonly at sites of chronic injury that his hypothesis was that that's a precondition for tumor formation, a chronic unhealing wound, that is. So what's the underlying theme there? Injury, damaged tissue. Fast forward to around 1930, another amazing German scientist, Dr. Otto Heinrich Warburg, the two-time Nobel Prize laureate that we spoke of before, he looked at, he was famous for his work in the metabolism of tumors, and he was looking at individual cells within a tumor. And what he found was that basically a, a cancer cell is just a cell with damaged mitochondria. So Virchow's work showed that a tumor was damaged tissue. And then Warburg's work, which has been endlessly validated since then, shows that a cancer cell, which is what the tumor is comprised of, um, is just dam a damaged cell, a defective cell. So, And so across the board, what we see here is that ca cancer is not a genetic disease. What it is, is a metabolic disease. And what's happening is that the metabolic or the metabolism, the metabolic processes within the, within the cell are damaged. So with that in mind, the one concept that people really need to know about is called the tumor microenvironment. This is probably the most important concept in cancer research that really, since the time of Virchow and Warburg, pieced the rest of this puzzle together. And so the tumor microenvironment is the area directly surrounding a tumor, or you could call it a field as well. And it turns out when somebody has a tumor in their body, the tumor microenvironment is highly toxic. So I guess I should step back and say, anytime you have injured tissue, the very first thing that happens, say you fall off your skateboard and scrape your elbow, the very first response from your body is to send stem cells to the area. And stem cells are incredible. You, I'm sure many people have heard of it. Uh, basically, stem cells, when they arrive at a, an injured site in the body, they can differentiate into any type of cell that the, in the body. Any type of cell that's injured, they can turn into that cell and then serve as a replacement cell and finish uh, the healing process. But in tumors, there's a defective healing process. So this is where it gets interesting. When the, when the stem cells meet the tumor microenvironment in a cancer patient, the tumor microenvironment is highly toxic. So when the stem cells arrive, immediately upon arrival, they're injured. And in the process of dying, they release signals to recruit more stem cells, which when they arrive at the site of the injury are immediately injured as well. And then they recruit more stem cells. So it's been very well established that what a tumor actually is comprised of is dead and dying stem cells, which have honed to the site of the injury to, to repair it but because the tumor microenvironment is so toxic, they're immediately damaged. So a tumor is a collection of defective and dead cells that have gone there to heal an injury. And it's like this vicious circle in which the body can't complete the healing process. 
So when you look in the tumor microenvironment, the question is, you know, what's in there that's, that's disrupting the healing process? And there are a number of things, including um, inflammatory mediators like nuclear factor, kappa B, interleukins, all these kinds of things. Stress hormones like cortisol, estrogen. Uh, there's excess serotonin. Um, lactic acid is another one. So finally, I'm able to answer your question. You know, if, if I had cancer, what would I do? <clears throat> and the sane and rational and scientific approach to treating cancer then would be to pick any of the substances in the tumor microenvironment and then take a medicine that reduces that substance. So one of the things that's well known inside a cancer patient in the tumor microenvironment is elevated lactic acid. And so how do you deal with the lactic acid? Well, the listeners may be familiar with um, when you were a kid, you did a scientific project called like a volcano. Um, it's where you take vinegar and baking soda and you mix them together and it bubbles and fizzes away and creates that gas. And it's fun for kids. I do that with my nephew. He loves it. Yeah, I remember doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, baking soda for cancer, sodium bicarbonate, that is, it's surprisingly well researched. I think people would be shocked to see how how effective it is and how much research has actually been done on it. I don't know who's funding it. It must be independent scientists because it's about a dollar a box. And the industry makes like 150000 lifetime cost of a cancer patient. So they're not interested in sodium bicarbonate. But nonetheless, there's been lots of research done on it. And just like the vinegar, um, the acidity of the vinegar is alkalized when it comes in contact with the sodium bicarbonate. Mm -hmm. So too is the lactic acid in the tumor microenvironment neutralized when baking soda comes in contact with it. So it's been um, anybody with cancer who's interested in an alternative treatment then, or I should say what I would do, I'm not going to recommend anyone do anything, but um, baking soda inside water taken orally has been shown to increase the pH of the tumor microenvironment. So something as simple as putting a teaspoon of baking soda in a glass of water or juice one time or multiple times per day is a very effective way um, to clean up the toxicity of the tumor microenvironment. And then when the stem cells arrive, suddenly they have the environment in which they can di differentiate, an environment in which they can use oxygen. And then they turn into the damaged tissue cell type. They serve as the replacement. The body repairs the damage. The cancerous tumor goes away and the patient is healed. Interesting. That's like, yeah, I've heard a lot about uh, bicarbonate soda over the years. Uh, and I'm curious too, because the common argument that comes up is that the, the stomach neutralizes it and pulls it all apart and therefore it, it can't change the alkalinity of the body or anywhere in the body. What's, what's going on there if it is changing the pH of a particular area? Well, the interesting thing to look at is what gas that's being produced when, um, when sodium bicarbonate neutralizes an acid. And it turns out that CO2. And physiologically, it's very misunderstood the role of CO2 in the body. There are many different directions I could go with this one. Uh, <laughs> however, I think I'll stick with the Bohr effect. If anyone's heard of the Bohr effect, basically, in your body, oxygen is transported through the blood to your cells attached to hemoglobin, your red blood cells. And until it, it is released from that hemoglobin... Um, your cells cannot use the oxygen. And it turns out the trigger for the release of oxygen from your red blood cells is CO2 itself. And 
additionally, so that's one mechanism. And another mechanism of CO2 and its incredible benefits in the body is that it's the primary vasodilator in the body. People, A lot of people think it's CO2. Uh, people in the medical industry are trained, or sorry, nitric oxide. Mm-hmm. Um, in the book I'm writing now, I, I bust that myth pretty well. Uh, methylene blue is a nitric oxide inhibitor. And it's in all the things, every single study that shows benefit from it. Uh, flies in the face of that theory. So uh, anyways, CO2 is a vasodilator, which increases blood supply to an area. And then when the blood does arrive, it rapidly oxygenates the tissues. So that's exactly what's happening to the lactate when it comes in contact with the bicarbonate. It results in rapid tumor oxygenation. And Italian doctor Julio Simoncini, um, he's been known to inject bicarbonate serum directly into tumors. And it very quickly resolves that issue. Wow. So it's exactly what's happening there. There's a Japanese study I quote in my book, and they inject CO2 gas directly into a tumor. And it very it resolves itself very quickly as well. Turns out bicarbonate and CO2 are just basically different forms of the same thing. So when you're talking sodium bicarbonate treatment, you're talking about CO2 therapy. Interesting. And I guess that obviously bypasses uh, the whole... alkalizing in the gut by injecting it straight into the tumor micro environment yeah absolutely and uh i forgot to comment on that when you do take it orally since the stomach's basically an acid bath uh what will happen is it will turn into co2 right in the stomach and then i think it'll be absorbed into the body that way anyways so it's not like it goes to waste i think uh it's still every bit as valuable that's what the evidence suggests to me Yeah, man, this is such an amazing topic and you're clearly so well researched. And so uh, I know for a fact that there's going to be so many listeners that know someone that's had cancer or got cancer or they themselves. And so so everybody can know where to find you and your content. Where can everyone find you online? Uh, Yeah, you can find my work at endalldisease.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, um, I give out three free eBooks with every sign up just to get you started. There's one on, one's actually from my book, The Cancer Industry, and that's the chapter on chemotherapy, medicine or murder. And then uh, for my second book, a chapter on sodium bicarbonate. If you were interested in what I just said about sodium bicarbonate, never before has it been easier to learn just about as much Almost, I, I, want, I don't want to be closed-minded and say everything you could ever want to learn about it, but about as close to everything you could ever want to learn about baking soda in that second ebook on sodium bicarbonate. And then the third free ebook you get when you sign up to the newsletter is a red light therapy dose guide. So basically, the exact doses as found in clinical trials and other scientific studies to be effective for various diseases. And so... That's what you get if you sign up. So hop on the newsletter and uh, anything new coming out, including a book I'm writing, uh, you'll have a chance to see it first before anyone. Amazing. And for everybody listening, I will put all of the relevant links down in the show notes below. So scroll down and jump on there, endalldisease.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode or you have a friend or family member that could benefit, share it with them or take a screenshot and share it into your social media stories and tag both myself and Mark. We love to see who's listening in and can connect obviously over on social media. And to wrap up, Mark, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? I think I would love for people to know more about methylene blue. Um, In the same way that the world's trying to transition away from so-called fossil fuel energy, uh, the medical world or in the world of medicine, we're switching and transitioning to from uh, genetic-based therapies to metabolic-based therapies. 
and I'm like 95% done a book on methylene blue. And I'm so excited to unleash this one onto the world. What we're going to realize in time is that methylene blue is one of the most effective and safest therapies for remedying the metabolic dysfunction underlying all diseases in existence that has ever been discovered. So if you hop on the newsletter, like I said, uh, I'll give all my newsletter subscribers a chance to read it before it hits shelves for free. So make sure you do that. And uh, I want to say thanks for anyone who's listening, because if you weren't here, uh, it would just be a conversation between me and Maddie, and it would be a great conversation, but there'd be no hope involved with it. So the fact that there's lots of people listening, it gives me hope for a better world. Me too, and I'm super glad that you're a part of that world, Mark. So thank you so much for being here, doing all the work and research that you do. Uh, You're welcome back anytime, and I hope that you are... Yeah, all the best moving forward. Let's connect again soon. Thanks a lot, brother. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.